0: Okay, have your Bibles turn to Mark chapter 14. <clears throat> Mark chapter 14 is where we'll be this morning. And we'll be looking at verses 53 through the end of chapter 14. So, Mark 14 53 through 72. <clears throat> and while you're turning there, let me let me kind of set the stage where we're gonna see in this passage a tale of two trials. A tale of two trials. While one trial will be perfectly clear, we'll see Jesus before the Sanhedrin. It will be a clear trial. The other trial is, is not as clear. In fact, that trial will be Peter outside, not far away from, from where Jesus is, in the courtyard by the fires. And Peter will be being tried, not, not by the, the same group that Jesus is, but by a, a servant girl and some, some bystanders. And, and Mark, in, in, in this passage, he's sandwiching these two accounts, and he's doing it for a purpose, and, and the purpose is to contrast Jesus and Peter. Peter is not going to be seen positively in this passage. Okay, So, so that's clear, he's going to be contrasted with Jesus and not being Seen positively. And so as we look at this quest- passage, we have to ask ourselves two questions. First, we ought to say, well, how am I like Peter? How am I like the negative example? We ought always to consider this. If, if your response in, in coming across any negative za- example in, in reading the scriptures is always only, I'm so glad I'm not like them, and if that's your only response when you see negative people portrayed in scriptures, you're missing the point. We have to ask ourselves, how am I like Peter? Where do I need to change? Seek to grow. Seek God to change me. And then second, we ought to ask ourselves, not how, how am I like Peter? How can I change? But how can I become more like Christ? When we see Jesus here in this passage, he will be clearly seen as the faithful witness. And we ought to long as Christians to be more like him. And so we see in Jesus an example to follow. We also, not only an example to follow, but we are going to see the one who's going to the cross whose death will pay for our sins, that we might even be able to follow him. Okay, so, so we'll, we'll see Jesus as a positive example. So a tale of two trials. Well, let's read, you can follow along as I read verses 53 all the way through 72 of Mark chapter 14. So follow along as I read, beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he, that's Peter, was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, "'We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands.' And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Verse 63, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Trial 2, verse 66, and Peter, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him, and she said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This this man is one of them. But again he denied it. After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning that you would show us where we need change. Father, would you show us specific areas where we are in need of your help. And in spirit, to that end, I pray that you would open our eyes. And Father, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged by the Lamb of God who was slain. For us, would we be reminded once again, Father, of the love that's been shown for us in the sitting of Christ to die on the cross in our place? It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, let's let's work through this passage. I see three pretty pretty easy sub sections here. Three main points that we'll work through, one at a time. So so first, verses fifty three and fifty four, we see the setting where, where where Mark is is setting the stage for what's to follow. Then Then point two, we see verses 55 through 65, Jesus on trial. And then finally, thirdly, we see Peter's denial in verses 66 through 72. So let's let's work through these together. First beginning, verses 53 and 54, the setting. So so if you remember, if you weren't here last week, Jesus had just been arrested by by the guards that Judas had led, that that great group, to Jesus, and and it said, that's the man, they arrest Jesus, and, and now... At that case, remember verse 50 of, of chapter 14, all the disciples ran away in fear. They all fled, as Jesus had said. And so Jesus leaves with this crowd. Judas, we assume, is there with him and takes him to the high priest. And so in verse 53, Jesus gets there. There's this coalition of chief priests and elders and scribes. This, these enemies of Jesus who've been there from the beginning, right? always opposing him. They're there waiting for him. At the house of the chief priest. And so so Mark sets the stage for the trial there in verse 53, the trial of Jesus. But before going into detail about that trial, look at verse 54. He adds another note, which picks up the story of Peter. So see, there in verse 54, Peter, he'd followed at a distance. He, he wants to see what's happening, so he keeps his distance, but after fleeing, he comes to his senses, maybe, but, but he starts following at a distance. Well, where are they taking him? What's going to happen to this, to this master of mine, this, this Jesus? And so Peter follows him all the way up to the, to the gate, and he stops there at the guard's fire where he's warming himself. And so as we look at this passage, as I mentioned just a moment ago, Mark is intertwining these events, so I think these are actually happening at exactly the same time. That Jesus is on trial and Peter is outside on trial at exactly the same time. And I think Mark is intertwining these, even artistically you could say, as as putting together this gospel account, to to show the contrast. That here's Jesus standing before the highest religious authorities in all of of Judaism. Being tried and just outside, just a stone throw away, here's Peter who is cowering before a servant girl. Right, what a contrast. Everything from circumstances to responses, they couldn't be more different. And so Mark sets the stage for these two trials. And then after setting the stage, let's look at verse 55. Mark moves on to the trial of Jesus. <clears throat> so verses 55 through 65, the trial of Jesus. Now, as we just read, this trial, there's kind of two sections. There's the first, one of these, these inconsistent testimonies. So Mark Mark relays this Part, where, where people are coming trying to, to convict Jesus, but there's inconsistent testimonies. And in the second part um, in verses 60 through 65 is this, this conversation, this interaction between Jesus and the high priest, who, who we know is Caiaphas. So let's look first at these inconsistent testimonies. <clears throat> so notice there, verses 55 through 59. So so Mark, when we get to this trial, Mark makes plain and clear that the whole purpose, the, the point, the, the purpose of this trial is to put Jesus to death, right? So you see there in verse 55, right? The priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That's all they care about, putting him to death. And so they begin seeking testimony. This, this group of leaders, this, these authority figures, they needed testimony of others in order to justly or rightly condemn Jesus. They didn't have the authority. They couldn't just say, okay, we're going to kill him. They needed authority. They needed witnesses. And so in in capital cases like this, condemnation, the death penalty required the unanimous or agreeing evidence of at least two witnesses. And so they they at least want to appear to be following the law, so they start calling witnesses together, hoping to find consistent testimony that they'll then be able to say, you're guilty, let's go kill him. And so apparently there are lots of witnesses coming forward. Notice that. I mean, we're in the middle of the night. It's dark, right? This is when people sleep. And yet here we have a whole host of witnesses coming forward. I mean, who does that? Well, that tells us that this is prearranged. And people say, okay, you, all you guys who, who, who know that they were trying to kill Jesus, we actually found one of his disciples who's going to betray him and lead us to him. And then we're going to bring him back here. So, so be ready. Actually, just wait, wait here for us when we come back. Start getting your stories together. This is clearly prearranged. They, all they care about is convicting Jesus and killing him. So, so they, they, they get all these witnesses, but notice at the end of verse 55, they're seeking testimony, but they found none. They couldn't even find false witnesses to agree. They found none, no evidence. It wasn't from lack of testimonies. Many bore false witness against them, but their testimony didn't agree. So verse 57, notice, Mark records just one example. So I, I assume there's lots of examples like this, but here Mark pinpoints one example of the false witness. Some stood up, and they bore false witness against him, saying, verse 58, "...we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands." So, so Mark, Mark includes this one specific charge. Well, well, why this one instead of others? We don't know what the others were. We can take guesses, but, but Mark records this one. Well, why does he do it? I think one of the reasons is because of the, the significance of the temple, right? Jesus has, has just come from the temple. He's taught a lot on the temple, but, but the significance of the temple in Judaism. It was a major piece of the Jewish religion. It was the place. I mean, we're at Passover. We had thousands upon thousands of people coming to Jerusalem for the sake of Passover to be in Jerusalem and to be at the temple. It's a significant religious complex. And, and in this world, for someone to desecrate or destroy a place of worship, it was, it was, it was worthy or it was guilty of, of capital punishment. So if, if someone desecrated or destroyed a place of worship, they could be killed. And so here... People say, we, we, we know he talked about the temple, well, let, let's use that charge. And so here, they start bringing false witness. But, even here, Mark says, their testimony did not agree. They, they, maybe it was the, the semantics, the specifics that they couldn't agree. I mean, what's quoted, Jesus never said, I will destroy this temple. And so that, that may be the, the, the discrepancy that said, nope, those, those testimonies don't agree. Nonetheless, Mark is making the point that, that they can't agree the testimonies don't agree. There's not sufficient evidence. Now, one more thing that, that I think is interesting is that by these witnesses stepping up and giving false witness, especially this, this part about the destruction of the temple, it shows that, that his opponents had been listening. They'd at least heard him say something about the temple, that they could reconvene kind of a, a, a teaching, then completely missed everything that he had taught about the temple, right? They didn't get it 100% correct, but they get the gist, they get that the temple is going to be destroyed. Notice they also caught the, the part about rebuilding it three days later. And it, made me, it made me wonder how many of, of these leaders revisit this teaching after the resurrection. And they, it was in there. They knew what he had said. But like we said, verse 59, even about this, their testimony didn't agree. And so as Mark is, is, is recording this trial, it becomes quite clear that this trial is, a, is wildly unsuccessful. These leaders can't even drum up enough false witnesses in order to generate sufficient evidence to sentence Jesus to death. They can't even even create fake false witness that's sufficient to condemn him. Imagine the building frustration of these leaders. I mean, let's remember, they don't even care about justice they don't care about justice. This is hardly a legitimate trial. One cometh here, note, since the goal is simply to to find sufficient evidence to put Jesus to death. That's all they care about, and and these false witnesses can't do it. Which leads into the second part, verses 60 through 65, and this interaction between Jesus and the high priest. And so, so no telling how long this 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 witness testimony goes on. In verse 60, seeing that this host of witnesses can't secure. Condemnation that that everyone wanted. Here we have Caiaphas as the presiding justice, the the one in charge here. He determined to interrogate Jesus himself. So he steps up, okay, uh, you guys failed miserably. Let me take over. And so, verse 60, he stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? It's it's as if Caiaphas is saying, Are are you not going to say anything? Do you hear all these charges? Aren't you going to say something? What do you have to say about all of these things that have been said? About this temple, what do you want to say about that? Do you want to say anything? Caiaphas is hoping that, that since he can't incriminate Jesus by the words of others, that if he can get Jesus to speak, he can trap him in his own words. So, so he, maybe he can draw Jesus out and to say something. He's looking for, for direct self-incrimination, it seems. But verse 60, Jesus remains silent. He made no answer, no answer, silent. That's a reminder of Isaiah fifty-three: "As a sheep before its sears is silent, so he did not open his mouth." Silence. What do you want to say, man? What? 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 What's your answer? They're saying some crazy things about you. Don't you want to defend yourself? Silence. Nothing from Jesus. Just sits there. Caiaphas then, point blank: "Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah?" Are you the son of God, the son of the blessed one? Are you him? No more roundabout discussion, no more false witnesses, no more games. Are you the Christ, Caiaphas says. Verse 62, we, we get a word from Jesus. I am. I am. Nothing abnormal about this answer. Jesus is simply responding, yes. You ask me a question? Yes. Now, this is not something some people want to look at that saying, look, this is the divine name, like the I am that was revealed to Moses. That, that's not in the, in the original. It's just he's answering the question. You don't have to read much into that. Jesus is simply saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. Which, if, if you've been with us through Mark's gospel, we should know this is the clearest declaration of Jesus about himself so far. There's been this hiddenness, there's been this secrecy. Don't, don't tell anyone about what's happened. But here, the secret is over. <laughs> No more hiddenness. The time has come. Jesus is moving towards the cross. There's no more secrets. I am who you said. I am the Messiah. But notice, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He continues, I am, Jesus says. But there's more. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, we'll look at that, but, it, but in order to understand what Jesus is saying, notice verse 63. So it is the statement that Jesus makes, his continuation, after he says, I am, it's his continuation that, that seems to push Caiaphas over the edge. See there in verse 63? After Jesus gives his full answer, the high priest tears his garment and, and says, what, what else do we need? He said all that we need. You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision about him? So so Caiaphas erupts after Jesus says what he says about the coming of the Son of Man. And so so what is it, we have to ask ourselves, about his response that that stirs up, provokes this high priest? First, notice Jesus in this statement is bringing together two Old Testament passages. Okay, so the first one is Psalm 110.1. So Psalm 110, this is the most often quoted um, passage by Jesus. So, so in Psalm 110, 1, is part of this quotation, but then he combines what, what part of Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, specifically verse 13, but it, it's all there in, in Daniel 7. And so, so what Jesus is doing is bringing together these two well-known, important Old Testament passages, and by doing so, he's asserting two things. So there's kind of two assertions as he can, can, combines these. There's, there's one assertion that he makes by identifying himself with the, the passage of Psalm 110, and, and one assertion he makes about himself identifying himself with Daniel 7 and the vision there. So first, Psalm 110, he's saying, I'm going to be vindicated. I'm going to be vindicated. Although these men are going to be successful in killing him, Jesus wants them to know that he will be vindicated. He'll be seated, raised on the right hand of God. The right hand of power is, is the word that Jesus uses. And in Psalm 110, that, that verse that is quoted is where the Lord says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. And so, so by, by quoting Psalm 110, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, I am David's Lord, and I will be seated at the right hand of power. He's claiming that he's going to receive the place of highest honor at God's right hand. That's the first assertion. I am David's Lord from Psalm 110. That's the first thing he says. But then second... He mentions coming with the clouds of heaven. He's referring to the vision of Daniel 7, where where there Daniel sees one like the Son of Man, meaning I see a human figure who's coming on the clouds of heaven before the ancient of days, God himself, and and this one like a Son of Man is given glory and dominion in an everlasting kingdom. And so Jesus, by saying that he would be seen coming with the clouds of heaven, was asserting that, that I, Jesus am the one who will be the judge of all the earth. I'm the one who's, been given, who's going to be given power and authority and the everlasting dominion, and I'm going to have authority to judge everyone. I will be the eschatological judge of all. And so in his response to the high priest, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be vindicated, I'm going to be given glory and dominion, and I'm going to be appointed judge of all the earth. I mean, think about what's transpiring here, what, what Jesus is saying. So, here's this man in their midst who's saying these things. And, and these, these, these men, certainly they're thinking, how could this man, deserted by his followers, where's his followers? He had at least 12 we know of. Okay, we'll, we'll not count one of them, 11. Where are they? Deserted by his followers, standing powerless before us. No sword, no club, no authority. He's, he's powerless here. How could this one possibly be the glorious Messiah of the Jewish people? No way. And just as shocking, notice Jesus is also claiming that one day when he comes in glory, he will judge those who are standing above him in judgment right in that room. You notice that? I will, I'll be, you'll see me coming in the clouds, which means I'm going to judge you one day. Of course that's not going to go over well with this group of religious leaders. These are no small claims being made by Jesus, which which helps us understand why Caiaphas is going to tear his garments and proclaim, what what else do we need? This this teaching of Jesus, these these assertions that are being made by Jesus would not have been lost on these religious leaders. You've heard his blasphemy, Caiaphas says. He's he's blaspheming. In light of Jesus' plain and open affirmations about his Messiahship, Caiaphas concludes, That this man has infringed upon God's majesty and diminished the honor of God himself. So in Caiaphas' eyes, Jesus has committed blasphemy and is worthy of the penalty that the whole council has been seeking the whole time. He did it. Trapped. What's your decision? It's really clear. What's your decision? Verse 64. They all condemned him as deserving death. Trial over. Guilty. Lead him out. Some began to spit on him, cover his face to strike him, saying, prophesy, mocking him. And the guards received him with blows. Again, this is is the crowd confirming their verdict. This man, he's he's a blasphemer. Get him out of here. And so Mark concludes this trial of Jesus well, before we move to, to the third and final point of, of Peter's denial, let, let's, let's pause here, and, and I, I want to make a few applications from this trial of Jesus. First, I think an application is, is the identity of Jesus. I think that, that's a takeaway for us from this passage, the identity of Jesus. I mean, these verses reach a climax in terms of the self-disclosure of Jesus. Here we have a point-blank affirmation. He is the Messiah. So we ought not to miss that, right? He is the Messiah, so as we read about this, this maltreatment by these religious leaders, we have to remember that, that Jesus is doing this willingly and freely. He's giving his life as a ransom for many. He is suffering and he will die in order to save sinners from their sin. I mean, we, we can't forget that. This is our Messiah going through this trial, being mocked, falsely accused. Isaiah 53, he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was oppressed, afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus has authority to do whatever he wants in this situation. But this is our Messiah willingly, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, you do realize that, that Jesus answered Caiaphas the way he did because he knew that it would provoke him. He knew that this would incriminate him. Right? Caiaphas doesn't trap him here. Jesus says exactly what he says because he knows where it's gonna lead. And it's true. It's true. We'll say about that in a minute. But Jesus answers exactly as he intends to answer and is handed over to the guards and goes willingly. So the identity of Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who is crucified. On our behalf. And then then second, application, the promises of Jesus. As we follow Jesus through this process, one thing that's become very clear is that that his predictions, his prophecies, they're all being played out, just like he said they would. Now, I'm not not talking about Old Testament prophecies and predictions. I'm talking about specific predictions that Jesus himself has made in this gospel. If you remember, things like his, there there are three separate passion predictions where he says, I'm going to Jerusalem and this is going to happen. Things that included, I'm going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Happening. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the hands of the Gentiles. Happening. I'm going to be condemned to death. I'm going to be mocked and spit on. Happening. I'm going to be betrayed by one of the twelve. Done. I'm going to be killed. and, And three days later, I'm going to rise. Soon to happen. And so, all my point, all of these predictions have or will come to pass. Which tells us Jesus' word is revealed as as absolutely sure. And the reason I mention that is because application of this specific passage is the fact that Jesus is going to come again in glory. You see, he says that you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. That's a prediction. That's a promise made by the Messiah, made by Jesus. And it's it's yet to come to pass, which means... Like every other promise of Jesus in the gospel, it one day will come to pass. Now, depending on who you are, this, this promise of Jesus' return, it's either good news or it's, or it's terrible news. It's good news for, if you're here, you're a Christian. right? For the world-worn Christian, this is really good news. For the Christian who's, who's struggling under the weight of life in a fallen world. For, for the Christian who, who's been neglected, abused, mistreated, abandoned, wronged in, in those ways or in many others, the perspective return of Christ gives great hope. Vindication is coming, every wrong will be made right. That's great news. Think about brothers and sisters who are, who are being killed even now for their faith in Christ. Do you think, do you think the return of Christ is, is hope giving to them? He's coming back for us, he's, he's bringing relief, he's bringing justice. We need justice, don't we? This prospective return of Christ is good news for the Christian, for those who are are longing for his return. But for those of you who are not Christians, for those of you who, who couldn't care less about this prospective return, about the second coming, the reality of his return is terrible news for you. Because his return means judgment of his enemies. You notice Psalm 110, all his enemies will be put under his feet. They will be his footstool, subject to him. If you're not with Christ, you're his enemy. There's no middle ground. You're you're either with him or you're against him. And you're with him by trusting in him, by, by loving him, by putting your faith in him, by treasuring him. By, by having him be the center of your universe, the, the, the perspective from which you see is, is Christ-centered. That, that's how you're with him, if, if your affections are towards him. And if that's not you, right? I'm not talking about if you walk down an aisle, if you're baptized, if you, if you did this. I'm talking about if that's not you, if you're not a lover of Christ, the promise of his, his return ought to frighten you. right? The day of his return, it's not going to go well for those who oppose him. And so just, just hear that. It's coming. The day is coming. And the the silver lining for you in the midst of this this bad news is that Jesus still tarries. He still tarries. That that day is, is yet to come. And as long as that day is yet to come, you can still switch sides. You can still switch sides. You can transfer from condemned to accepted, from enemy to friend. You can know Christ as Lord. You can know him as Savior, as Messiah, and you can do that now. Today, he still tarries. And so non-Christian, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus because he's coming to judge his enemies. And apart from repentance and faith, you will receive just payment for your sins. We're not for Christ. We all would. Jesus won't tear forever. So, so be warned. Your time is running out, non Christian. Well, let's, let's move to our final section, verses 66 through 72. We see Peter's denial. So, having relayed to us the ongoing trial of, of Jesus in, in the house of Caiaphas, in the place of the high priest Mark, then shifts. Verse his attention just a short distance away. In fact, Luke's gospel records that that Jesus looks at Peter. So, so however this is is set up, there there's a short distance between Peter and Jesus. And Mark shifts to Peter right where we left him, and so we see the scene in verses 66 through 72. This this familiar scene where where Jesus' prediction about Peter's denial is actu- actualized is actually actualized right before eyes in this scene and. And so just quickly moving through, there's, there's three denials, right? Jesus says three times these, these play out, just like Jesus said. First, look verse 67. A servant girl, a slave girl of the high priest, sees Peter warming himself by the fire. She looks at him and says, you also were, were with the Nazarene Jesus. No, no, no harm in that. You were with him. I, I know you. Peter, verse 68, I neither know I don't even understand what you mean. I mean, think about the ignorance that he's he's playing here. I I don't even know what you're saying. I don't even know the words that are coming out of your mouth. In other words, what are you talking about? Denial one. Second, verse 69, the servant girl saw him, and she began to say again to the bystanders. Okay, so now she starts talking to others. He says he doesn't, but but this, this man, he's one of them. Verse 70, but again... He denied it, denial two, two times, just like that. I don't, I don't think there's a, a great span in between here. I think these are pretty immediate. And, and we do well to remember as, as we're reading this, earlier that same night, up, up in verse 29 of, of Mark 14, Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, remember this This is when Jesus was with his disciples, Peter says, all these other guys, they may fall away, but, but I'm not. To which Jesus, verse 30, says, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Verse 31, Peter said emphatically, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. That was this same night. So as we're reading this, the same night, Peter emphatically, I'm going to die with you. I'm never going to deny you. How fast and how far Peter has fallen. How fast and how far. Clearly, the unfaithful witness. He's, he's afraid. So quick to deny his true identity. So quick to deny his Lord. Verse 70. After a little while, the bystanders again <laughs> say to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them. For, here's why, you're a Galilean. Now, Mark doesn't say why they know that. It's probably his accent. They probably hear him talking and say... <laughs> I know you're from Galilee. That's a a Galilean accent. You're not from around here. We we can tell you're you're one of those Galileans who was with the man of Nazareth. We know it. Verse 71, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Denial three. One, two, three. Now it's interesting here in, in, in verse 71, in the original language, there's no subject for the cursing. So it just says, and he cursed. Now, the ESV, the, the version that I read from, supplies the subject of that curse. And if, if, you, if you notice, it said, he cursed himself, began to invoke a curse on himself. So what they're doing, they're making an interpretation. They're saying, okay, this is what we think it means. Okay, they make interpretive decisions, say he's cursing himself. Now, if you have a different version, maybe, maybe the New King James or the, the NASB or, or the NIV, all of those simply say, you can read it right there in verse 71, that Peter began to curse and to swear. Do you see they leave the subject out? It's, it's more vague, it's more general, and I think that's Mark's point. I think that's the right rendering. He's, it's, it's, it's not himself primarily or only. He's cursing, I think, himself and others. I think Peter's cursing himself, saying, and, and I thought about this, this is my elementary school translation, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I'm not lying, right? If I'm lying, you, you can... Cross my heart, hope to die. You can even stick a needle in my eye. I'm telling you the truth, right? I'm cursed if I'm lying. So I I think he is cursing himself. But I also think he's, he's cursing the repetitious inquisitors. Curse you if you don't believe me. How many times do I have to tell you? One commentator translated it this way. And I do quote, I quote, Go to hell for making such accusations against me. I swear to you, I do not know the man. Do you see that? That's a curse on them. What? What? You don't believe me? Cursed be you. And I think Mark's point is very clear. Peter could not possibly deny Christ any more adamantly than he's doing under the pressure of a mere servant, girl, and a few bystanders. He caves under these simple questions. Under the least bit of pressure, he betrays, denies his Lord. Verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The unfaithful witness, right? The the head disciple, Peter the rock, here reaches the bottom, doesn't he? But notice immediately he shows remorse. He shows brokenness over what's just happened, what he's just done. He he goes out and he weeps. Now let me close here with, with two applications applications and we're done first application the merciful forgiveness of jesus i think this is clear from from what we just read the more clearly we recognize the massive failure by peter here in these verses the more clearly we recognize the merciful forgiveness of christ right peter failed miserably but this isn't the end of peter we know peter's story don't we this isn't the end unlike judas this isn't the last we hear of peter In fact, Peter would be the one, this Peter, this cowardly, scared Peter would be the one in Acts 2 who stands up and proclaims, men of Israel, know for certain that God has made this man both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, right? What a transformation, same Peter. And my point is that Peter's failure doesn't disqualify him from his Lord's service, doesn't disqualify him. And let's be clear, Peter was repentant. He hated what he did. He, he knew the evil of his ways, but his failure didn't render him useless. And he doesn't become a benchwarmer indefinitely. Right? Even despite the great failure of Peter, he is still used mightily. And it's because of the merciful forgiveness of Christ. In fact, I mean, imagine the first readers of Mark's gospel. So as they're reading this, they, they hear that Peter... So as they're reading this, the the church has has grown, and and Peter is probably a pillar of the church, the great apostle Peter. And they're reading this, saying, oh my goodness, Peter, Peter, that that apostle in Jerusalem, that that elder of the church in Jerusalem, he's the one who failed like this? And so this account demonstrates that, that even the respected leaders of the church are totally dependent upon the merciful forgiveness of Jesus for their participation in the fellowship that bore his name. I mean, if Jesus doesn't offer merciful, restoring forgiveness, Peter's out. He's off the team, but that's not the case. And in this way, Jesus is magnified, isn't he? All others, even such a famous leader as Peter, all others are placed on the level of mere human disciples. There's Jesus, and there's his disciples, Jesus gets the honor. So so Christian, be encouraged. There's merciful forgiveness with Christ. Your your sin, your failure, it's no match for the grace that flows from Christ. And then lastly, last application, the faithful witness. As I said at the beginning, this this passage contrasts the trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter, and the contrast is clear. One's, One's faithful, one's unfaithful. One is positive example, one's negative example. And so for application's sake, I would simply ask, are you more like Peter or Jesus when it comes to your public witness? I mean, that's a simple question. When you consider your public witness, are you more like Peter or more like Jesus? On the one hand, are you afraid of being identified as a follower of Jesus? Right? I, can't, I can't let him know what I did yesterday. I can't let him know I actually listened to a sermon from the Bible. Right? Maybe that's extreme, but, but, but what do you think about when others, when the prospect of others knowing about your identity your allegiance to Jesus the simple questions generate fear in you are you afraid of what consequences you might face if it's known that you are one of his people you're with him is that you or on the other hand do you proclaim in the face of any and all who would know that your identity is tied to that of the Messiah I am one of his people shout it from the mountaintops that's who I am Mark seems to be presenting Jesus as a role model of the kind of courageous and faithful behavior that Christians are to emulate in the event of going through such trial themselves. And so may we recognize our fears and failures, our tendencies to be like Peter, and may we become more like Christ, the faithful witness. Let's pray.